You're listening to Beat Autoimmune and Thrive, the podcast all about reversing and preventing autoimmune conditions so you can live your most vibrant life as soon as possible. We talk about autoimmune root causes, actionable solutions, and inspirational healing stories. I'm Palmer Kippola, and I used to have MS. Today, I'm an author, a speaker, a functional medicine certified health coach, a pickleball player, and nature lover who's helped thousands of people reclaim their health and their best lives. Let's dive into this episode. Welcome, everyone. I am delighted. Dr. Joan Rosenberg, cutting edge psychologist, best selling author, consultant, master clinician and media host is with me today. She's a professor of graduate psychology at Pepperdine University in Los Angeles. She's a two-time TEDx speaker and member of the Association of Transformational Leaders. Dr. Rosenberg has been featured on the documentary, I Am, The Miracle Mindset, Pursuing Happiness, and The Hidden Epidemic. She's also been seen on CNN's American Morning, the OWN Network, and PBS. Her latest book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. It is a delight and honor to have you with me, Dr. Rosenberg. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. I'm very, very grateful. Oh, I, I love it. We are so aligned with your message. And I just want to Start with a line from Mary Morrissey. She wrote the foreword of your book, and she wrote that 90 Seconds to a Life You Love is a guided tour through unpleasant feelings and damaging thought patterns into real, meaningful, and lasting resilience and change for the better. Love that. And you know that I serve an audience of people who are proactively seeking to heal from autoimmune conditions. These are people who want to get better and to love our lives. And you very well know that stress, trauma, and emotional pain are central to the development of these autoimmune conditions. And as I write in my own book, Beat Autoimmune, uh, the Address Stress chapter, that it's often buried emotional pain, trauma, and the daily chronic emotional pain that's often self-imposed. So you have such a rich and provocative point of view and simple mm-hmm. framework to empower us to move through very painful emotions as a means to find freedom. So I just, I want to start off just as a, um, a level set. Is this sure. freedom that you speak of, is, are you talking about mind, body, and spirit freedom? What are you referring to when you say finding freedom? I, I, it is. It's freedom of all three. My experience is that once we are able to understand how we experience and move through emotion or experience and express emotion and also how and what we think, once we are able to make sense of, of those three or four things, then what ends up happening is that there is a liberation that happens. I, in fact, I, I have talked about the book more recently as not only helping people feel emotionally liberated, but that once they realize that they can use their voice in a particular way, it becomes, they have in front of them limitless opportunity. And, and so the, the emotional liberation really is uh, at all levels. And, and my experience going back really to the borrowing from the 1970s, the, uh, the feminist or women's movement used to talk about the personal as political, that once someone became personally aware 
that they had access to parts of themselves and awareness that could then liberate themselves to take political action, if you will. And, and, and their consciousness had expanded. And really that's true here too. One's consciousness expands and it then moves, it's a mind, body, and then spirit because you know you have access to far more than you had at the beginning. Well, that just sounds so incredibly hopeful. And I'm seeing that the end is this great expansion and a life full of possibility and and a life that we love. But for many people, we're starting at the beginning, right? Right. And and so I think for people with autoimmunity in particular, they're really familiar that part of that puzzle is trauma with a capital T. And I I would also say um, that it's driven by unhealthy coping mechanisms that grow out of the limiting beliefs that are created in response to that trauma. But then you've always, you've got the always on stress response that's fueled by this amplified looping of negative thinking and harsh self-talk and low self-esteem. All of these things kind of put us on this downward spiral of disempowerment. And so I want your help in helping us find the path out of doubt and disempowerment and into trust and empowerment. So I'd love for you to start wherever you think the best place to start is from this point of people just seeing the end point that you beautifully laid out, but they're here. So how do we even start that journey? You know, for me, it's the, and let me put it in context. When, when I was young, uh, and early in my life, I started out as a, a shy, not confident child, and in fact, felt like I didn't belong and didn't fit in. And the, the one question that surfaced for me at that time was, how does somebody become confident? And then as I got into my professional life, a second question emerged, and that had to do with trying to understand what made it so difficult for people to experience unpleasant feelings. And it turns out, in, in my world at least, and this may be one of those provocative ideas, that the essence or the foundation of confidence is actually your ability to handle unpleasant feelings. So the answer to the second question actually helps answer the first. Only one, the foundational piece, but it, it's, it's, a, it's an important piece. So the place to start, really, I would say, is to understand what makes it so difficult for us to experience unpleasant feelings. And what happened for me over really decades of experience at this point is that I witnessed people moving away consistently from a number of different feelings. And and as I said, I really struggled to, to, it's like, okay, how can I help them experience them? And, and, and so what I would typically tell them is ride the wave, ride the wave, ride the wave. And, but little did I know that I was actually intuitively correct, absent the science. So let me bring the science piece into it so that people, it, once you have it, you have it. Great. And so, so the idea, and, and a, a colleague of mine called what I'm going to tell you next, the Rosenberg Reset, and it, I, I let it stick. So this is the Rosenberg Reset, and it comes about in, you hear it in kind of a formula, and the formula is one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. So that's what I'm going to walk us through. How do you handle unpleasant feelings or what makes it so difficult to to do that? So the one choice is a choice to stay aware. It's to lean into your feelings as opposed to 
uh, and stay present to them. So the idea is that you want to be as in touch and aware of your feelings, or I should say it the other way around, as aware of and in touch with as much of your moment-to-moment experience as you can bear or as, you can, or as possible for you. And the, so uh, what is avoidance? The other choice, the other side of that coin is avoidance. And avoidance looks like eating. It looks like social media or screens. It looks like shopping. It looks like for men, it might be sex and pornography, maybe for women too. Um, but it, it, the li- and substance use, the list goes on and on. And I think I outlined maybe 35 different ways in the book that mm-hmm. one can stay distracted. And so think of avoidance as distraction. But what I'm wanting you to do is to lean into the choice of awareness and in touchness, if you will, uh, of, of, of those feelings. And, and so what, what feelings am I talking about? And consistently, it was at roughly seven or eight feelings. So I, I, in the book, I talk about eight. And the eight are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. So as you hear those, probably your first question is going to go, well, why isn't, and then you'll name some other feeling that's not there, like anxiety or guilt or something like that, or fear. And there's, there's many reasons why I didn't put those in. And, and so, so why then these eight? And it's these eight feelings because they're the most, in my mind, they're the most common everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that we perceive we need or the way we want. And, and so it's the everydayness of them. It's the calm, how commonly you'll experience them that is the reason that I chose those eight. And what you'll find is those eight cover uh, our reaction almost no matter what we're doing. So whether we're in relationship or we're trying to develop a skill or we're trying to do a presentation or it, ask for a raise, it doesn't matter. It's the same eight in those mm-hmm. situations. So, so that takes us to the next step here, and that is that what the the key to not only understanding what can uh, help you be able to stay present to those feelings, but it's the it's the key, it's the foundational piece, as I said, to confidence and and many other things. So, and that's the ninety second piece. So as I said, I was telling people to ride the wave. Well, little did I know that uh, what I was doing was tell people, telling people to ride bodily sensation waves. So let me explain that. When a feeling gets triggered, um, there's a rush of biochemicals into our bloodstream that activate bodily sensations. So think, think, embar- think embarrassment. So for the, the person watching someone, you see the redness that goes into the chest and up the neck and into the face. Um, the person experiencing it is experiencing the heat, if you will, of that rush of biochemicals. And, and that we know embarrassment because of that heat into the face. Now, what's interesting is that same rush of biochemicals flushes out of the bloodstream in an upper limit roughly around 90 seconds. And what dawned on me was that it wasn't that we didn't want to experience the whole range of what we felt emotionally. 
what I realized is that none of us wants to feel the bodily sensations that help us know what we're feeling emotionally. So the truth is most of us come to know what we're feeling emotionally through bodily sensation. And if we can ride one or more, so, and that's the key, one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves of one or more of eight unpleasant feelings, then we can pursue anything we want in life. So that's the method. And it's really the, the key here is that it's your bodily sensations that you don't want to experience that keeps you away from feeling. So the key to that is writing the bodily sensation waves. And the most important thing you can do is to breathe into them when you start to experience. I love that. I love that. Having grown up as a body surfer in Southern California myself, yeah. I, I just love that sensation. And I think people can really grasp that idea of riding yeah. the waves instead of being pummeled by them, right? Correct. Yep. But, but let's go back even closer to the beginning where people might be thinking, I'm here. Life is really hard. I'm sick. I've got these autoimmune issues. I might be even in bed. Life right. is just not what I want it to be. And I have this Beat Autoimmune Academy where the first unit that we go through is mindset. And mm -hmm. I actually have people envision their ideal future. And they, mm. they do an, a before picture of everything's in black and white and stick figure. And then they draw their ideal future on the right side. Love right. It. And then yep. they picture themselves in that picture, happy, smiling, family, in the mountains, gardening, sun is shining, everything's great. And so they can envision themselves in that picture. So here's before and here's after, but it's like right. we need this bridge to get right. people from where they are now, stuck maybe, or feeling disempowered, or I don't even know how to begin this because what you say makes so much sense. And I want to be in this picture over here, this ideal future. Sure, sure. So is it a choice just to start paying attention to what you feel in your body in terms of tuning into your emotions? Are you, are you suggesting that one of the reasons that people are not in that ideal picture now is that they may be stuck in some old patterns? some old habitual negative thinking. I mean, I'm just trying to build this bridge in my mind of how they go from maybe unaware and feeling stuck to knowing what they want, but not having the pathway to get there. Well, I would say that there's, there's three areas. There's three, there, well, there's a minimum of three. Uh, uh, that I would say are foundational elements to to creating that bridge from what you were talking about from kind of here to there, mm -hmm. and and so the 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 bridge would include having to pay attention to your thinking, having to pay attention to how you experience and express the feelings, and also paying attention to action taking. So it, you th those those are the three simplest bridges. I will I will say that there's um, my my own experience, I drew a diagram that I referenced in the 90 Seconds book, and I referenced the diagram, but I, I never present the diagram. And the, the pathways out of the diagram in my world have to do with, and I, I suppose I could add a third, another one there, but it has to do with being able to experience and express, uh, being able to experience feeling. The second has to do with being able to express feeling. And the third has to do with dealing with grief. 
Mm. And, and so it's, um, and what I, and in the book, I talk about what I call disguised grief. And it's, yes. it's really the grief over past difficult experiences in our life. But those are the, that, so think, you can think of adding one or two more bridges over, yeah. if you will, uh, <laughs> into, into, I, I mean, what I captured it with, with the experience and express mostly, but the third, the other one would be grief. So there's at least four. Uh, major bridges back over to the to the the pic- picture that has that much more richness and color to it. Yeah, that is so beautiful. I I love that. And there are many paths, and and I want to dig into all of those things. And sure, I think um, I want to go back to a framework that I love. Gabor Mate, who wrote the book When the Body Says No, mm-hmm. um, talks about how. In childhood, you know about all about the adverse childhood experiences in childhood sure. and how we yep. start to develop these unhealthy beliefs about ourselves and then the coping mechanisms and then the advent of autoimmunity even decades later and our personalities to become people pleasers, right? Mm-hmm. And perfectionists mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, overworkers and all of those things. And we develop these unhealthy boundaries and unhealthy boundaries is the gateway to autoimmunity. And what I see in your book and how I feel so connected to what you're writing about is it's all about becoming who you truly are. And that's the path to healing from autoimmunity. And Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, who's in my book, talks about this beautifully, that healing happens when we become who we truly are. And central to that thesis, I would imagine, is truth-telling. Right. Because who are we if I for years, you know, I'm becoming who my parents wanted me to be the society friends. Right. So getting to the nugget, that truth of who we truly are, is that about just developing that level of awareness and getting clear on what we're really experiencing? Is that the starting point for because we want to be fully self-expressed, but we I would imagine we have to start with telling the truth about ourselves to ourselves. Right. Absolutely. And uh, yes. So, so if you are distracting or disconnecting from those eight unpleasant feelings, there's no way to get to the truth of yourself. If we cut off half of our experience, which is the unpleasant feeling side of the house, then there's no way to be, to be telling or living the truth of yourself. So the, the, yes, the bottom line is that you have to start with how do you allow yourself to stay present to, and as I said at the very beginning, be aware of and in touch with as much of your moment-to-moment experience as possible? And and so experiencing those everyday feelings and, and leaning into them and acknowledging, yep, this is the truth of what I'm experiencing is the first step. And, but I cannot leave out, as I said earlier, I cannot leave out, one, the expression of those same feelings nor can I leave out how, kind of what one thinks, the very specific words that one says to oneself uh, or says to someone else, nor can I leave out how one thinks, which has to do with our thought patterns, and, and often they're the negative thought patterns that people get into. So, and then that lands us into harsh self-criticism and some other things, but, but those pieces have to be addressed to come home to ourselves. So beautifully said. So awareness, it sounds like mindfulness, which is a big and loaded word, but would you say that developing a practice somehow to begin to get comfortable just observing? Just noticing? Just noticing. Yeah, right. Just I mean, that's the, for me, that's the first step. You know, 
I, people will comment about how the book seems close to mindfulness and, uh, and it, there are elements that are true to that. It's, and it's so interesting because I didn't do reading. I specifically didn't do reading from some other disciplines. So it wouldn't influence kind of what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I do know that there's intersections uh, in my book between uh, what people would call cognitive therapy or the dialectical behavior therapy or mindfulness. So the, the first step is awareness, but it's not in my world. It's not just the awareness. Uh, that's again, that is the, that's the gateway to growth for ever, for everyone. Yes. Uh, and the first step is always awareness. We have to do what, in fact, you mentioned Mary Morrissey. We have to do what she talks about, which is what she calls noticing what we notice. That's right. So it's it's not just that we have an experience. is that we're able to notice that we had that experience. And not only that, to notice that we can notice that we had that experience. <laughs> and so, when, we're, yes. when we're at that second and third level, those are the points of change. And the most profound change happens when we're at that next level up, which is noticing that we can notice that we have an experience. And if you if your noticer is not on, then let's turn that on right now to help you move in that direction. So the, the key it. so the key then is yes, the foundational piece is the is being able to experience uh, be aware of and in touch with and, and so that you're experiencing those unpleasant feelings. Uh, and then in addition to that, it's understanding that you can then make use of those feelings. So you lean into them by breathing. Then you can ask yourself, like, what triggered this? What is there, you know, and, and you know, what, you know, what, what was happening that led me to react this way? Is there a pattern to this? And, and how do I want to make use of what I'm experiencing? Do I need to make a decision? Do I need to express what's going on? Do I need to take an action based on what I'm experiencing? So it goes beyond mindfulness because I actually want people to then make use of the experience that they're aware of. Absolutely. I I love that. And one of the parts that you talk about in the book is the importance of labeling the emotion. Yes. Because in my experience of practicing and learning mindfulness, um, when you label things, you disconnect a little bit. And that space allows you a little more freedom to be the witness than to be caught in it. Does that? It helps us regulate our emotional state actually more effectively. So that, and what I have found so often, Palmer, is that when, uh, when people are able to put a more accurate label on the experience they're having, so rather than, for instance, use the word anxiety, which is global and vague in my world, um, they're able to put a more specific feeling to it. What ends up happening is I watch kind of this, almost like a, the air is being let out of a balloon and somebody goes, ooh, so they just kind of, <clears throat> kind of, they calm down right into themselves. And, and so for me, that's a, again, that's the body biofeedback. It's the body letting us know that oh, we're on the right track. That was accurate. Um, that there's a calming sensation that follows the, even if it's a difficult feeling, there's still a calming sensation that happens. Um, and then you know that you're, in essence, being more true to yourself. So, And that's actually label, soothing. That's actually really soothing, yes. right? We want yeah. to bring down that. And you touched on anxiety, and I'm so glad you did, because I am seeing more and more people 
in this realm of dealing with autoimmunity, dealing with COVID and all of the concerns of the pandemic, um, the anxiety, quote unquote, levels are going up. They're escalating. Right. And, right. and But what I love about your book, many things, but you mentioned stories of people who you've worked with and they came in complaining about anxiety because right. it's such just a plain vanilla big term. Yep. But you, you encourage people to dig deeper. And I'm all about getting to root causes because that's the only way we're going to heal is sure. if we get yes. down to the root causes. So help us to understand how, where do we feel anxiety? What, how is that different than fear? And then how do we dig deeper than that to identify what it actually is? Because I think there's an invitation that a lot of people are missing. Great. Thank you for the question. I look at fear and anxiety as two words that are terribly overused and both and both misused and overused. And let me let me break it down. So fear, if we look at what psychology talks about, fear is danger in the moment right now. So in essence, if you are not in danger in the moment right now, stop using the word fear. Why? Because it activates what we, the words we choose have a, if you will, a vibration to them. And we activate that, that state within ourselves when we use the word fear. So, so if you have no tiger chasing you in the moment, or you're, you're literally, you're not at life threat in any way, then please don't use the word fear. So like fear of public speaking, they always talk about that as the number one fear. It's not a fear. It's, it's just not because for most or for most people in most situations, um, it's it, you're not at threat of losing your life when you speak up. So then, what's the next most logical thing? Well, that would be to use the word anxiety. And from psychology standpoint, anxiety is what they call diffuse apprehension or diffuse concern that some bad event is going to happen in the future, and that that bad event is going to have a bad consequence. And and okay. Great. Makes sense. Except if I were to ask 10 people what, what anxiety meant to them, I would have 10 different answers. So for me, it's a useless concept. It actually means nothing. I don't know what you mean by it when you say I'm anxious. Right. So, so then, so what do you do? Well, then I would say, use my eight feelings, go to the eight feelings. And the first one that I would be inclined to have you choose would be vulnerability because it's more of a state, if you will, than a pure feeling. But, but does the idea of vulnerability is this, the sense that I could be hurt. Okay. Um, then, then a pub fear of public speaking. Oh, okay. I'm feeling vulnerable because I might get hurt. Well, what's hurt going to look like? It's going to look like the other seven feelings. Mm. That's what hurt's going to look like. So, so the, what's this time, what's this pandemic all about? It's, a, it's in my world, it's not only a time of profound loss and grief, it's also a, a time of heightened vulnerability. Mm. So that's what we're experiencing. We have, an, we have the sense and the awareness that we're vulnerable in ways that we don't typically think about it. The threat of death, if you will, is constant in front of us, either through actual death and loss or through an awareness that we could potentially lose our lives. And so it's this, this very heightened awareness, even though we're not even fully aware that that's what's going on. 
And that's where that le- those levels of awareness come in too. That that now, oh, now I can go, oh, that's the, the anxiety I'm feeling? That's vulnerability. And I will tell you, if it's not vulnerability, then it's one or more of the other seven feelings. So when you feel anxious or say, I, you know, I have anxiety, I'm going to invite you, or, whether, or, or the use of fear, I'm going to invite you to go beyond that and, and to see. So I'm going to take those words away from you. And what I'm going to in, in, instead invite you to do is to see if you're experiencing one or more of the eight unpleasant feelings I mentioned. I'll, I'll share a personal story Please. that brings this to light. Please. It happened last night. Uh, I was okay. re- rereading your book. Okay. I happened to wake up at three in the morning. I have my little device here and was reading your book. I started to get a level of anxiety that I, and, and distorted thinking on top of that. Right. So, uh-huh. so I have to say that, that I do, you know, I catch myself doing the distorted <laughs> thinking. I will never get back to sleep. But I was like, okay, Palmer, this is an opportunity to use Dr. Rosenberg's book right now. Put it in practice. I'm feeling anxious. Why am I feeling anxious? What's really going on? And I had never done that with myself before until last night. So I caught myself thinking, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that I'm not getting a full night's sleep. Uh And that's one of your eight. Yep. So... I found that to be really rich because when we have these emotions, we can often suffer because our expectation is here. I expect that I'm going to get a full eight, eight and a half hours sleep. And when I don't, I experience some level of suffering. But Mm. if I don't name it properly, Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I was continuing to do myself a disservice that I just had this kind of generalized anxiety about not sleeping fully. Right. And so you were disappointed. So I was disappointed. I was just, but, but actually just even saying that and naming it to myself like, Oh, okay. Disappointment. Right. Right. That's not the end of the world. I'm going to get enough sleep. And tonight I might go to bed a little earlier, but it gave me a little bit more empowerment, I guess. Sure. By actually labeling it properly. Right. Yep. Just, just that in that moment, just that one thing. Well, my, my experience is that again, that more commonly, people use the word anxiety when they really mean that they're feeling vulnerable. They have the sense that they could be hurt, and and like I said, what I also want people to understand is that the emotional, the emotional outcome of hurt are the other seven feelings, and and if you really wrap your head around that. Um, that that's a life changer potentially for you is that if you're, if you're hesitant to take risks to do whatever it is in your life, then, and you know, whatever it is, I don't even want to make suggestions about it. Then understand the biggest reason is not that you're not, you're not going after the risk because of the risk. You're not going after the risk because you don't want to deal with the emotional outcome of the risk. And the emotional outcome of the risk are the other seven feelings I mentioned. So if it's not vulnerability, then then stop and as you did and check and see whether it's one or more of the other seven feelings that you're reluctant to experience. Yeah. 
really beautiful. And I keep going back to the picture that I have people draw of their ideal Mm -hmm. futures and they're not there yet, but the path seems to be, as you're describing, the key really is to dig into those emotions because I, I feel that people don't personally feel empowered to get themselves into that picture, but the healing from autoimmunity is an invitation to wake up to their their true lives. And right. often right. that implies change. Yes. And, and that could be, I'm in the wrong marriage. Right. I am not happy with my job. Right. I don't feel self-actualized. I'm not doing, uh, my life doesn't have meaning. But mm-hmm. all of those things require this, this courage, right? I mean- But it's the courage to, it, right. It's the courage to face the truth of ourselves. Again, to to face what we're experiencing and experiencing by way of feeling, thinking, and then uh, and then also expressing. So sometimes people aren't as in tune with their emotions, but you say that those eight emotions happen in the body. I wonder if you would like to help us to understand where we might be feeling these things, especially if people are disconnected from their feelings. You know, I would, I would love to give you an answer for that, but the the truth of the matter is, is that that's unique to every individual. Interesting. So, so, so if I were to, even if I were to say kind of, and there's an exercise in the book and I also often when I am doing uh, speaking presentations, I'll walk people through what I call a how, what, where exercise to notice <clears throat> how, what, and where at least a few of the eight feelings are in their body, mm-hmm. uh, and and the truth of the matter is, is that you're gonna uh, you're gonna tell me a different place than someone else is gonna tell me, yeah. and I, I, so I can I can give you the, kind of the broad picture to it, but I can't give you the specific picture. I mean, there's a client, one client for instance feels anger as heat at the back of her neck. Uh, another client feels anger as um, heat in her forearms. Mm. So, and then someone else feels tightness of the jaw as anger, right? So every one of us has uh, what Antonio Damasio would call a different somatic profile or a different somatic marker or body marker, if you will, for what, what the feeling is. So the thing that I would have people do is to kind of walk, walk themselves through this how, what, where exercise of, so that they can notice how, what, and where those feelings are. Yeah, that's beautiful. I I feel, I believe that a lot of people think that a lot of these ruminating thought patterns happen just automatically. And in the book, you talk about Jill, Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor. I love, she wrote the book, My Stroke of Insight. Right. Um, And, and she writes, or you write that she says, it's because you've chosen that circuit to continue to run. Right. Somebody might answer, I haven't chosen this. It just happens. So, right. Well, we we think we're at we think we're at uh, result with our thinking, and the truth is that we're actually we we have way more to do with how and what we think than we normally think, and and so yes, my my goal is really to get people's thinking aligned better or, or aligned well, and and one of those ways, in, again, in my world, is to stop harsh self criticism. You're not, you're not at the, uh, your, your brain is not subjecting you to that. You, you are, are either consciously or because you've practiced it so much unconsciously at this point, um, get in the habit of just beating yourself up. And, and I will tell you 
that, and, I, and again, Palmer, I don't even have the words for this, to express the exponential damage that I believe staying engaged in harsh self-criticism does to someone. It's so, so again, if, if, if you wrap your head around this, the way I look at harsh self-criticism or negative self-talk is that it's your thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. Meaning that if you, again, if you really dig into this idea that, that harsh self-criticism is the way you distract from your own unpleasant feelings. Wow. So, so, so then what do you do? Let me give you an example, and then what do you do? The, the best example, because it's the quickest and the cleanest, is that I was doing an interview, as I'm doing with you today, and the, <clears throat> the person I was interviewing with, <clears throat> uh, I could hear him. He could not hear me. So I'm watching him start to get on his knees and start to get under the desk to look at the computer and are the cords tightened and what is looking all over to try to solve the problem. And this is going on for two or three minutes. Now it's like, I'm chilling. I'm just waiting. I just, it's a problem that has to be solved. I don't have any agenda around it, but, but it's now the minutes are passing. Mm-hmm. And what I hear come out of his mouth is, I'm so embarrassed. And without missing a beat, he says, I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. Just like that. And that's how quickly you do it as well. Yeah. And so what I want you to understand is that his next move to, I'm such an idiot, I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, was the distraction from the embarrassment. Now you do that every day. And let me assure you, I feel disappointed is very different from I'm disappointed in myself. Mm. I'm disappointed in myself, by the way, is a judgment. I'm disappointed is the feeling. And you've got to understand to make that distinction. So, so what I will challenge you, you've now listened to this. There's no reason for you to ever go back to harsh self-criticism because the moment you understand this is the moment you can change it. So how do you do that? You notice, again, using Mary Morrissey, just a cherished friend of mine, using Mary Morrissey, notice what you're noticing. Notice that you are engaged in harsh self-criticism and negative self-talk. And what do you do at that point? You stop yourself. You pause and you reflect and you go, what was going on just before I did that that was harder for me to think, feel, know, or bear? What and what feeling was there? Oh, oh, yeah, I don't, I hate embarrassment or I hate disappointment. Oh, that's what was going on. I didn't want to be in touch with that. Now you can, so what do I want to do with this? How am I going to make use of this, as I talked about earlier? But if you can, if you can wrap your head around this concept, uh, and, and I think that I, w- I will also say, and this is a little bit bold and provocative, is I don't think that most depression is depression. 
I think a great deal of the kind of depressive reaction that most of us experience or that many people experience is actually this harsh self-criticism piece. It just takes us down a downward spiral. So the sooner that you can stop that nonsense, if you will, you're going to feel an organic lift simply because you've stopped that. It's like stop the madness. We may have been raised by people that were supremely judgmental and critical, and we now have taken over those voices and we do it to ourselves and we right. think it's normal because right. it's, it's what always was. Right. But I think this is really, I keep coming back to this invitation to truth, to waking right. up. Right. And it's right. that waking up to the awareness that, oh, there I go again. And yep. to have some gentleness with it, because I think that self-flagellation, we need to move to self-compassion. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. if we continue to beat ourselves, it just adds that second arrow, right? That second layer. Of right. right. But then you're, and if you're beating yourself up, then you're into harsh self-criticism again. So it doesn't work. Stop, it's stop the, the madness. The, right. Yeah, absolutely. And the compassion, is, the gentleness and compassion is important. Yes. Oh, I feel like so much of this is you're giving us the keys and it's just kind of up to us to use those keys to unlock right, this, right? Right, Yes, yes. I, yes. I love it. And I don't want to miss talking about grief because you mentioned okay. it earlier and it's right. such a big topic. Um, and I think we're all familiar with the concept of grief when we lose a loved one. And right. sometimes we don't get over something in a reasonable amount of time and we feel this lingering grief, but you also talk about disguised grief. Right. I think, and, and I also want, and I want you to talk about that, plus this grief, this collective grief, and so many parents with children who the children are not able to go through the things that they would normally be able to do, go to prom, right, go to, right. you know, whatever it is because of this unusual time that we're in, I think there's a lot of people grieving. So can you help us you know, find freedom from this collective. Well, I think I think we're all I think we're all grieving. I don't I, if 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 we have any level of awareness about what's happening in our lives, and have a, a thinking brain, I think we're all grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the difficulty is is that the grief at this point is just continuing. So what do I so what do I mean by grief? So yes, with common grief, we associate with a relationship loss. So think human or pet, right? Uh, I've, the first place is to understand that I also define loss more broadly. And and so grief can be over loss of reputation or prestige or status or finances or employment or, uh, again, there's an endless list there. Um, so that the first thing is to understand that we just expand the notion of where loss and grief can show up. The The second is to understand how I'm framing this idea of disguised grief. When I listen to people talk and I hear words like resentment, I'm, I'm resentful or I'm bitter, or I hold grudges, or um, I've got this longstanding anger and hurt, or I'm pessimistic or cynical, or I think the list goes on. And in the book, I think I talk about 14 or 15 what I call grief signal words. And the, what, what all that says to me, uh, and jealousy as well, all that says to me is you're grieving. So let that land as you're listening for a moment. If you're bitter and hold grudges and you're still resentful about stuff, 
you're grieving. So that's the one way you can understand disguised grief is if you use those words. The second way to understand disguised grief has to do with what I would call kind of difficult life experiences. And, and I, I identified five different categories of grief. And it's grieving over what we got and didn't deserve. Think the harsh, bad stuff. Abuse. Um, chaos. I don't have to go into all the details. It's grieving over what we deserved and didn't get. So in this case, think the good stuff. We missed out on the good stuff. Praise for straight A's. Someone coming to your game or your cheerleading practice or your, your recital in front of somebody or graduation for that matter. It's grieving over what never was. So think of the, the lost opportunity. It's mostly centered on lost opportunities and kind of how you grew up. You didn't get to go to the good school. You didn't get to be part of a certain club. Whatever it might be, you grew up in poverty. doesn't matter what it is. It's grieving over what never was, grieving over what is not now. So you may have grief about where you are, that you're not exactly where you want to be. So it's your current circumstances then. And then I call grieving, I call it also grieving over what may never be. So that I call grief over lost potentials or grief over imagined futures. And so your reference to, to commencements or proms or whatever it is that aren't happening, or now I just saw that, that there's another, the college football season won't happen for many colleges this year. That's the loss of an imagined future for spectators and for the players. So that's, that's grief. So those five categories of grief and those grief signal words are all markers of what I call disguised grief. So we sit with this. Yes. We get clear that this yes. is what's actually going on. Right. I am grieving. This is hard. This is sad. Right. This is real. Right. And breathing into that because right. it's a thought also. I mean, it's amazing yes, how yes, powerful yes. our thoughts are because right. if I change what I'm thinking about, I can stop tears. I mean, sometimes I feel powerless and they're just going to flow anyway, but of course. you yep. can just change what you're focused on and decide to focus on what are some of the silver linings from this? What would reframing yeah, so, yeah, so, be appropriate? Because I, yeah. I don't want to gloss over this is real, no, no, this no, is this happening. Is, for me, this is... This is one of the most, I mean, I, I put, as you mentioned earlier, I, and we talked about right before the interview started today, that um, there's a richness to, to this book. And, and for me, this chat, the chapter eight alone on, on moving through grief is, it's such a core, it's, it's a, such a core piece of the work. And, and I, I couldn't leave it out. Um, that's, that's how important it is. And, and because we all, we all go through that. And, so, so what I talk about in that chapter and uh, in dealing with all this disguised grief, it first is to understand that the way I look at grief is that grief is sad, that at least at the minimum, four feelings of sadness, helplessness, anger, and disappointment. We can add in frustration. We might add in some other feelings, but it's at the minimum, it's that those four. So if you're feeling any one of those individually, like I'm sad, or you're feeling them collectively, it's all grief. 
just so that's the first thing to to think about that that so, so what does it mean to go through grief it means handling those feelings it means experiencing those feelings and then and then throughout the the rest of that chapter what i do is i provide a framework for you be, to be able to move through difficult life experiences that you experience either as an adult or certainly predominantly when you were a child growing up and and the the most important part of it uh, the, the central piece of it has to do with uh, what I call inquire more deeply. And that's where what I'm asking you to do is to make sense of the impact and meaning that those life experiences had on you across time. And the across time is also important. So it's answering questions like, like, who did you become because of what you went through. When you experienced the experience, as you aged, and who you are now. So this across time element is also an important part of it. And the essence is to make sense of the impact and meaning. Then once you've done that, it's to, it's to be able to, to go, all right, what did I learn from this? How did this change me as a human being? For instance, many people who grew up in chaos or in, in homes where there's a lot of drug abuse or, or alcoholism or whatever it might be, or anger, explosive anger, they often stay at school as long as they can stay at school. So what happens? They, they become uh, great students. Well, that's a positive out of a negative. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So the, the, and that whole chapter walks you through that, that understanding. That that so resonates with what we're doing here and talking about. Right. And I hope everybody picks up your book. I think in the context of healing from an autoimmune condition, I talk with people about finding the gift in their experience instead of looking at something, why did this happen to me? To consider what if this happened for you? Right, when I right. was diagnosed with MS at 19, I wasn't thinking at that moment, um, gee, this is a gift and, you know, this is all happening for me. And, and that usually happens with hindsight, right? Right, sure. But the faster I think that we can find the gift in that uncomfortable moment or whatever it is, it's sometimes a calling. Right. Sometimes yes. I feel, yeah. and it sounds, yeah. you know, so Pollyanna to say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You no, hear this so, and you think this no. is ridiculous, but it, it actually those we many times we go through those life experiences because it actually it, it, it either and I say this at the end of the book it either invites or demands us to to step into ourselves and to follow the path we were actually brought here to be to 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 follow or to create or do yeah I almost don't even want to say anything on top of that because okay. that is the cherry on top of everything. But I, I actually have your book open to the last couple of paragraphs. Okay. Um, maybe I'm going to invite you to read this if you want to open your book. Um, okay. Tell me where. Because the, the, the paragraph. Well, this is the book, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the beautiful cover. I love that. So there, at, right at the end, um, mm -hmm. you say you are capable and this is where I really want you to connect directly with people and let people know what they are capable of. Oh, you, you are capable of experiencing far more than your circumstances and conditions. Pursue those dreams. 
do so with confidence. How far do you want to stretch? Living who you want to be is one choice away. It starts with making the one choice to be well-connected to your moment-to-moment experience and riding one or more 90-second waves of one or more of eight difficult feelings. When you commit to this, you are committing to every goal, every dream, and every possibility you can imagine for yourself. You are committing to something more. Simple, huh? Welcome home. So powerful, so beautiful. I don't have anything on top of that. Is there anything more that one could, you could possibly say, or is that how you would uh, like no, I, it would be It would be coming back to, uh, I'd probably say two things. One is, is in, uh, in understanding what we've been talking about or understanding even that last passage, my encouragement is for people to think, speak, and take action in the direction you want your results to be. Don't, don't think, speak, and take action in the, in the direction you don't want your results to be. Think, speak, and take action in the, resu- in the direction you want your results to be. And then the second goes back to what we said earlier. The whole purpose of the, that last, of those last couple words is, again, to come back to understanding that when you can do this then, and really be present to those feelings and get your thinking lined right, then the your whole experience becomes emotionally liberated and you are available to limitless opportunity. So beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your gifts with us. This was a gorgeous conversation. I'm so mm-hmm. grateful. Thank you so much and all the best to you now. I would like to also add for people yes. that want to learn more and to download some free gifts that you have to offer, to go to drjoanrosenberg.com forward slash gift. Do I have Correct. that right? You got it right. Yep. Drrosenberg.com forward slash gift. Right. There's lots of resources available there. And then I'm on social media. So feel free to feel free to follow. I do a weekly blog, etc. So, um, yeah, there's just, and there's a ton of resources on the, in kind of embedded in the website as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to the next time. Take great care of yourself. You too. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and I'm honored. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And if you feel inspired, please leave a quick review so other people can find it too. Now, if you want to beat autoimmune and thrive, make sure you sign up for my free video training at freeautoimmunetraining.com. That's freeautoimmunetraining.com and watch the first video right away. Take good care. Bye for now.